The health of our democracy demands we consider treating Facebook, Google, and Amazon with the same firm hand that led government to wage war on AT&T, IBM, and Microsoft. This show, as well as my charity works, are made possible by you, the listeners. For details on our current campaign, visit us at bestoftheleft.com slash winter17. Of course, there's also a big banner right on our homepage and a link in the show notes on the device you're using right now. So check that out. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, We the Podcast, The Young Turks, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and Ideas from the CBC. Facebook seems to be feeling the heat because on Thursday afternoon, founder Mark Zuckerberg took to the friendly precincts of Facebook Live to assure us that change was coming. Maybe the most important step we're taking is we're going to make political advertising more transparent. Not only will you have to disclose which page paid for an ad, but we will also make it so you can visit an advertiser's page and see the ads that they're currently running to any audience on Facebook. We will roll this out over the coming months, and we will work with others to create a new standard for transparency in online political ads. Okay, Mark. This time we'll be watching you. What inspired Facebook's sudden burst of sunlight? Why, love of democracy, of course. Facebook's mission is all about giving people a voice and bringing people closer together. Those are democratic values, and we're proud of them. I don't want anyone to use our tools to undermine democracy. That's not what we stand for. But this year in Silicon Valley, oligarchy seemed the operative word. I'm not referring just to the Russian ad sales, but to the recent revelation that Twitter, Facebook, and Google have all allowed advertisers to use racist language in their ad targeting. And then there's the proliferation of fake news and propaganda and the ongoing surrender of our privacy. What is to be done? Well, according to Matt Stoller, a fellow at the Open Markets Institute, it's not nibbling at the edges, but a fundamental restructuring of these juggernauts. And he believes the solution begins with properly naming the problem, monopoly. Matt, welcome to OTM. Thanks. Where we see tech companies behaving badly, you see classic monopoly behavior. Right. They are controlling entire branches of trade and industry. In this case, it's the advertising industry and what is called in Silicon Valley, the attention economy. The consequences of this are actually what one might call absentee ownership. So it's not like Facebook is planning to undermine democracy. They're not in a hollowed out volcano in Silicon Valley trying to figure out how to destroy the world. No, no, these aren't villains, right? I mean, the engineers in Silicon Valley, the product managers, many of the executives are really trying to improve the world. I love Google. I use Google. Facebook is incredibly useful. I use Twitter all the time. These are amazing technologies. The problem is the way that we've let this attention economy totally unregulated and we, the way that we've done no antitrust investigations has caused all of this sort of collateral damage. And it's actually undermining our democracy. It's undermining social cohesion. They are effectively private governments. And if we don't get a hold of them, then they will increasingly govern us. Is Mark Zuckerberg John D. Rockefeller? Is he a robber baron? He is a robber baron. There is no question. There's an argument that he's more powerful than 
John D. Rockefeller was in his day, just because John D. Rockefeller could organize communities and companies, but he couldn't go down to the individual level, whereas Mark Zuckerberg can actually manipulate people's minds. It sounds kind of crazy, but this is what insiders are coming out and starting to talk about. The attention economy is organized to just grab hold of your brain using all of these manipulative techniques to keep you using it. What we're seeing is it's breeding all of this sort of divisive behavior. When you use a lot of Facebook services, you get jealous, you get angry, you debate in unproductive and hostile ways. It keeps you using their products, but you're becoming a angrier, less happy person. It's threatening community bonds. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. But you don't believe that a little regulation at the margins is really the solution. What we need is investigations of these business entities. We need to know how they operate. The advertising market is incredibly complicated and has turned from a sort of madman-style agency-based model to a complex financial marketplace where your eyeballs are bought and sold like stocks or bonds or credit instruments. And there's all sorts of market manipulation going on there. These are very complex marketplaces and regulators and enforcers need to actually start looking at them so that we can actually address it, whether that's with antitrust enforcement lawsuits, regulatory tools, or structural separation of parts of these companies, public utility regulations. I mean, there's a whole suite of anti-monopoly tools that we can use to get a hold of these institutions. Let's talk about public sentiment. There was a time when trust-busting was a populistic notion, and those days seem to be behind us. Why? The way to understand kind of regulation and political economy is that you have sovereignty. Someone's going to be in charge. And in the late 70s, early 80s, for a variety of reasons, people were essentially persuaded that we should move sovereign power away from public institutions and vest it in private companies. And so you saw deregulation, you saw union busting, and you saw merger waves, and you've seen ultimately the growth of these institutions like Amazon, Facebook, Google, who are governing our society. They are regulating our society. It's always amusing to hear people talk about deregulation when, of course, everybody knows that we are heavily regulated. We are just regulated by private actors, not public ones. And so this was an intellectual revolution that people didn't really fight for a whole lot of reasons because it came both on the right and the left. And now we're in a place where people are recognizing that there is something seriously wrong with our institutions They are not managing risk effectively. They are not delivering productivity and democracy itself. And our survival is actually increasingly at risk. So we're returning to what you pointed out was a more populist type of error. And we're saying, you know what, we need to bring sovereignty and vest it back in public institutions, in democratic institutions. And that's what antitrust rules and public regulation actually means. Okay, smart guy. You are (laughs) suggesting that what we need is public sentiment to coalesce against the kind of monopolistic powers we have vested in these two or three companies. However, considering the current administration, considering the view that jobs are the godhead and business should be left alone, considering the utility that these companies afford I mean, all the forces seem to be arrayed against any kind of citizen revolt. I mean, the villagers are not running through the streets with flaming torches. It is happening. We are all having these debates now, which we weren't having even a year ago. 
It's happening among Republicans. It's happening among Democrats. It's happening in the business world. You know, as the entire retail sector gets savaged by Amazon, as we see foreign influence in our elections and this incredible secrecy, people are waking up and actually debating the structure of our political economy for the first time in a really long time. And maybe you cocktail in different places than I do, but I don't think there's any evidence that the electorate cares one whit about a lot of this stuff. I mean, FTC, consumer welfare monopolies, these are the kinds of subjects that make the public's eyes glaze over. I'm tired of hearing from people that the public doesn't understand. People interact a thousand times a day with corporations. People understand Monopoly. When that guy in United got beaten up, they understood what that meant. Everybody gets billed by their cable companies every month, and they know they're getting ripped off. There's private polling showing that they get it. It's actually kind of offensive at this point. People are not stupid. The thing that people don't understand is the gibberish in D.C. about all the dumb micro-scandals that don't matter to them. The messages that work are the ones that attack Wall Street, that attack powerful interests, and the reason they work is because people know that they're screwing them. People on the Beltway think that voters are stupid, but voters are not stupid, and they understand what is happening. But there is a difference, is there not, between understanding, even at a visceral level, and demanding action. You can understand, but if you dismiss things with a shrug, you can't fight City Hall and you can't fight Facebook, I've got to worry about my car payment this month. The understanding gets you nowhere. My question is, how do you get rid of that shrug? That's a really important question. There was a change election in 2006, a change election in 2008, a change election in 2010, a change election in 2014, a change election in 2016. So my conclusion is people want change. The problem isn't actually communicating with the public and having the public vote for change. It, the problem is that the policymakers keep lying. The way that you have to fix that, and this is what we do at Open Markets, but it's also what's happening at large, is you have to develop new economic models, new legal frameworks, new policy tools to allow policymakers to take the anger that the voters are showing, the desperation, the desire for change that voters are showing, and actually translate that into policy action. And I'm really hopeful. I mean, we've had crushing disappointments just in terms of the willingness of our public officials to actually govern. And now... We're starting to see the beginnings of a movement of people in politics who are saying enough is enough, and we are going to take back our society and take back our democracy. People founded the antitrust, uh, 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 when they federalized antitrust power in 1890, you know, they talked about restraint of trade, but they understood that, they understood the worker to be selling his or her labor. Yeah. So this was a sense of, you know, every single person benefits, every producer, every, every farmer who's bringing uh, a, a crop to market, every single uh, innovator who is bringing an idea to market, every single person who is bringing labor to market. We want to have open and competitive markets to ensure that nobody gets to dictate what we earn to us and that we have no bosses. We can pick up and leave. 
walk across the street, walk down the way, and find a new person to sell our crop, our labor, or our idea to. That is what freedom is. How many times do you see local communities pledging away their tax base so that some big, you know, uh, uh, cartel or some, uh, you know, can come into their community, uh, always with the dangling the promise of jobs, and that is what we're being offered as opposed to fighting those big monopolists um, and saying, hey, we're going to create an environment where your own organic native talents can grow, where you can be creative and have low barriers to entry uh, for your ideas. Um, I kind of kind of felt like that is something we see even nowadays. Oh, absolutely. We're seeing it right now with Amazon. Amazon says, we're going to create a second headquarters. In this headquarters, we're going to employ, say, something like 30,000 people. So now what they have is just about every single city, every single town, every single state in this country is saying, well, we want your headquarters, your second headquarters here. And so now you see this race to give away things to Amazon so that uh, they will come to a particular place. Uh, so, th- you know, this happens very much today. And it is a it's one of the things that makes it hard to concentrate power against the monopolists. Uh, but as you, you know, the key thing, again, is that what we want to do is like the way the political economy of the United States used to be structured uh, you know, following the principles of Brandeis and Wilson and FDR is that it is to ins- to put the individual citizen and the individual community first. The corporation exists to serve the public. The, the business corporation exists to serve the individual, not vice versa. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, you know, in this whole, you know, post um citizens united world you know this is this corporation some corporations are a person with a whole lot more rights than any person i ever met walking around so it's amazing so you know our country actually did you know we're talking about like 1912 but we did develop a way to combat and confront monopoly and cartel and you mentioned you invoked fdr and and we actually were pretty good you know there was a case i think you mentioned the a and p case you know where you know, we were kind of on the alert for for the monopoly for a while, and uh, then things changed. Can you talk about the golden age of anti-monopoly enforcement in the United States a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the golden age, you know, we really had two golden ages, and uh, the first was in the early days of the republic when things were kept small and people kept them small because you didn't have major technologies linking up place and place you didn't have railroads you didn't have telegraph you didn't have well now the internet so um so it was relatively easy to fight monopoly uh the second uh, the second stage came in the early 20th century uh in the mid 20th century uh when we were adjusting our laws to deal with the rise of the railroad and airplanes and the telephone and uh, these 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 technologies that crushed space and uh so this took this it was essentially it was a second american revolution because as we've talked about before the plutocrats during the gilded age had concentrated control in their own hands. They had all the levers of power in this country in their own hands. And the American people, over the course of about 20 years, broke the power of the plutocrats. They broke the power of the corporate barons. They 
broke the power of the giant bankers and financiers, and they returned the power to the people. And uh, and that was what existed in this country. That was what uh, was. That's how this country was run up until the early days of the Reagan administration. And that's when things really radically changed. Yeah, and, and but then what what happened during Reagan? And who were some of the thought leaders that that helped to bring about the change? Yeah. So what happened in the uh, and this is important for people to understand is. Um, in the early days of the Reagan administration, uh, there was a bunch of folks who come from the Chicago School of Economics. And the, these people said, you know what? We've been using antitrust, anti-monopoly to protect our liberty. We've been using it to protect our democracy and our communities. Um, but you know what? This, it's inefficient the way we use our anti-monopoly. So we should change it so that we can promote greater efficiency in the creation of stuff. Uh, and they changed the the philosophy behind our anti-monopoly laws. And they said, rather than serving the citizen, the interest of the citizen, and the citizen wants, what does the citizen want? The citizen wants liberty. The citizen wants democracy. They said, what we need to do is promote the interest of the consumer. And what does the consumer want? The consumer wants stuff. So they literally went in and crossed out the word citizen from the laws that we use to uh, to protect us against monopoly. And they said, and they wrote in instead the word consumer, consumer welfare. And in doing that, they changed how all of this whole body of anti-monopoly law that we had developed over 200 years in this country, at a stroke, they changed the philosophy of how we enforce those laws, and they turned anti-monopoly law into a means to create monopoly. And, yeah, and, 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 and so what will have we seen since then? I mean, was Robert, because I understand, was one of the leading voices in this area. Uh, yes, Robert Bork uh, wrote a book. He published this book uh, called The Antitrust Paradox. He published it in 1978, and that was the book that the the Chicago schoolers that the Reagan administration used to as their primer, as their guide for overthrowing these laws that we had used to preserve our liberty and preserve our democracy for 200 years. And, um, uh, and Bork was, you know, he was, there were a few other folks that were engaged in, in, in that battle. There, there were actually some people, uh, just to be honest, there were some people from the, you know, there's uh, the, the, the command, we could call it the command and control left who kind of uh, said amen to that. Uh, but uh, actually, actually, there was a famous case uh, in which uh, the deciding opinion was actually the great Justice Brennan, um, who uh, kind of used some judicial language to open the door for greater monopolization as well. Yeah, and, and the thing is, the important thing for people to understand is that laws uh, exist within a, a, a framework of, of, of ideas. And that uh, you can take the same laws and you can use them in radically different ways depending on what kind of governing ideas you have in your head. And the thing about Chicago School libertarianism, it is a way of thinking that is designed to hide truth from you. Where, you know, instead of, you know, uh, for 200 years, people would uh, see, well, they've concentrated power. I see a fist in my face. What the Chicago School Libertarian ideology is designed to do is to hide that fist mm. behind something that they call the market. Right. And 
But the result is that for the last 35 years, we've seen the other side steadily concentrate more power in that fist. And that's the reality we face today is that on our side, there's a whole bunch of folks who are standing here ready to fight, but we don't quite know how. On the other side, they have a very fat, clenched fist. Now, we talked about monopolies and oligopolies, and oligopoly is a state of limited competition in which a market is shared by a small number of producers or sellers. It's similar to a monopoly, but with multiple providers colluding to corner a market rather than just one. The laptop computer market is dominated by companies like HP, Dell, and Apple, and the majority of mobile phones are produced by Apple, Samsung, and LG. You also see this type of thing in the market for cars, air travel, movies, candy, and game consoles. And just like monopolies, oligopolies are a drag on the optimal performance of markets because they impede new businesses from entering the market while providing consumers with fewer purchasing options. Does this sound a little familiar to you? Remember the word oligopoly next time your Wi-Fi speeds are throttled by TWC for no apparent reason and how few other options you have if you want to change ISPs. Now this doesn't really seem fair. But can government regulators do anything to intervene on your behalf? Well, yes, they can, thanks to legislation we refer to as antitrust laws. Now, antitrust laws promote or seek to maintain market competition by restricting individual companies from securing monopolies. When properly enforced, these laws help maintain a competitive marketplace where prices are determined by supply and demand rather than by a single company controlling a market and setting higher prices that consumers are forced to pay. Antitrust laws also keep the market open to new businesses by limiting artificial barriers of entry erected by industry leaders. So where do antitrust laws come from anyway? Well, in 1890, Senator John Sherman, this guy, authored a landmark federal statute requiring the federal government to investigate and pursue trusts. A trust in this case refers to a monopoly and not the million dollar bank accounts that rich white kids who like to do coke have. And for nearly a hundred years, antitrust laws were enforced, breaking up monopolies and oligopolies in a range of industries. Theodore Roosevelt's administration broke up Standard Oil in 1911. After the 1948 Paramount decision, which I covered in part one, which you should definitely go check out, the government no longer allowed film studios to own the theaters that showed their movies, effectively preventing them from exercising complete control over the film industry. We even broke up AT&T in the 80s and then regulated Microsoft when they owned the majority of the PC market and tried to force Internet Explorer on all devices. Think about that. Without government regulation, we would all be forced to use Internet Explorer. I can't think of anything worse than that, to be honest. Well, I probably can. And I will actually talk about that. Now, these were all instances where companies sought to prevent competition by vertically or horizontally expanding, which harmed consumers. But you might be thinking, well, these aren't the old days where Carnegie's and the Rockefellers were controlling monopolies and oligopolies. They don't exist anymore in our society, right? Wrong. Wrong, I say. You're wrong, but I don't blame you for it. In this sea of seemingly endless choices, clever marketing and branding make it seem like we have all the choice in the world when we don't. Let's take a look at something super innocent like toothpaste, for example. Sure, there are hundreds of different toothpaste in the grocery store aisle, but the majority of them are owned by just two brands, Procter & Gamble and Colgate-Palmolive. And as long as these two companies don't own the majority of supply of resources that go into making toothpaste and erect an artificial barrier of entry, 
or buy out or cut deals to prevent drug stores from carrying newer brands, they aren't necessarily engaging in illegal business practices. But does that really mean that consumers aren't negatively impacted in the process? Well, this might not be the case for keeping your teeth intact or having pearly whites, but it is absolutely the case for oligopolies formed in recent years within one key industry, an industry that also scores worse on favorability rating surveys than Ted Cruz does. And honestly, nobody likes Ted Cruz, like not even his daughter likes him. I'm of course referring to airlines and their notoriously low ratings on the American Customer Satisfaction Index. Now, to be fair, the airline industry is prone to monopolization due to its natural barriers of entry, similar to like waste management or, or power. Because buying a fleet of planes requires a lot of capital up front, just like building a waste management facility would, or a nuclear power plant would, which causes natural monopolization within those industries. And this is precisely why airlines should face stricter government regulation in order to protect the consumers. But airlines do take full advantage of the lack of regulation. Have you ever thought about why as domestic airlines rapidly monopolize, and you hear about this in the news when an airline buys another one through a mega merger, prices also seem to increase at rates much faster than inflation. And this number doesn't even take into account the free amenities that are now considered payable add-ons like luggage fees. Well, according to a comprehensive study by the Associated Press, increasing prices in airfare are directly linked to mega mergers within the U.S. airline industry that have reduced nine large U.S. airlines to four. And those airlines are American, United, Delta, and Southwest. And now... At 40 of the 100 largest U.S. airports, a single airline controls a majority of the market. And that's scary, especially when you consider that the AP study concluded that collusion allows airlines to frequently upsell customers, overbook flights, charge exorbitant fees for simple things like changing flights or essentials like checking in luggage. These things were all free back in the day and they're not anymore. And while the U.S. government knows how to deal with monopolies, it gets trickier to prove collusion or price fixing within these new oligopolies. There are several reasons why the federal government has scaled back its pursuit of antitrust suits and allowed mega mergers to happen. One reason is that it's very hard to prove collusion. There's much debate around whether corporations should be penalized for parallel pricing or not, but then unless an airline agrees to set fixed prices in backroom deals and the government can demonstrate harm to consumers, it's very hard to regulate. As any college Republican with an economics textbook can tell you, within oligopolies, the reason prices remain close to one another can be explained by the natural workings of the market, which would also prove that the airfares we pay are as low as possible. But the game theory explanation doesn't factor in price leadership. The U.S. airlines made more than $3 billion in 2014 just from cancellation and change fees. Just from that. They took advantage of this concept simply because we didn't read the fine print as American consumers. And they didn't have to do this in a smoke-filled room. All they had to do was follow the shady practices or prices the leading corporation adopted. And since there isn't an explicit agreement to point to, should the government pursue all industries prone to monopolization with a guilty until proven innocent mentality? Well, many experts in the field think so, and those people are looking out for you. Another reason why there's so little regulation in the airline industry, and you probably could have guessed where I'm going with here, is the prevalence of money in politics. 
Why would pro-corporate government officials try to hurt the bottom line of companies that line their pockets each election cycle, one after the other, especially if the public is largely unaware that there is a problem to begin with? This is why the mirage of choice, paired with the difficulties of proving collusion, creates a huge oligopoly problem in the United States. If the companies that control an industry decide to apply identical practices that improve their quarterly numbers while sticking it to customers, the outcome is essentially the same. It's no different than when the industry is controlled by a single company exercising a monopoly. So then, the only reasonable conclusion is that the government needs to treat these oligopolies the same way it treats monopolies. Otherwise, at this rate, in the next two years, we'll be paying for cabin pressure. This episode is sponsored by Action Heat, an apparel line who makes the world's best heated clothing. And as the temperature continues to drop, I am sure that you can see the benefits of heated clothing. So imagine like an electric blanket, but in your jacket, your socks, your gloves, hat, even your undergarments. Action Heat clothing is engineered to safely and efficiently deliver heat via heating panels similar to a heated car seat. They can reach temperatures of up to 135 degrees and are powered by a rechargeable low-voltage battery that lasts up to 12 hours on each charge and can even recharge your phone and gadgets at the same time. These are available in men's and women's styles naturally, and they start at just $39.99. And we have a special deal for listeners to save 15% on your entire order just go to action-heat.com slash best to check out everything Action Heat has to offer. That's action-heat.com slash best or use the coupon code best at checkout to save 15%. So stay warm this winter with Action Heat and thanks to them for supporting the podcast. One thing I liked about your book is the big picture here. You're not just focusing on the seduction of consumers and their complicity in supporting these companies because sooner or later, Amazon's going to be a big monopoly if it isn't stopped, and then the prices are going to go up for sure. You're talking about the democratic future of our country. You want to elaborate that a bit? Yeah, because democracy, as I've said, requires people to be independent thinkers, and it requires us to make good decisions. The hero of my book is really Louis Brandeis, who is somebody who's just who's fallen out of favor over time. He was, of course, a Supreme Court justice, and he was also the guy who did the most to formulate our ideas about privacy, as well as being perhaps the greatest enemy of monopoly in this country. And for me, he got it exactly right, which is that Part of the reason that he saw monopolies as so dangerous was that he saw the ways in which people become dependent on monopolies. He feared that workers wouldn't feel like they could be independent enough to vote their mind or formulate their own opinions if they became dependent on their employer, became dependent on a monopoly. And he also formulated the idea of privacy in a way that seems to me that best gets at the concept, which is that in order to think independent thoughts, we can't be afraid that somebody is watching over our shoulder. That as soon as we start to sense that somebody is watching us while we think, we begin to formulate our thoughts to appease our audience. And so we become, if we're being watched, we become more cautious, we become less subversive. 
And both of these things are tremendous, tremendous dangers for monopoly. And what Brandeis did, which I think needs to come back into vogue, was that he didn't sit around obsessing over whether companies were supplying the lowest prices. He was obsessing about how these companies would affect democracies writ large. He, he was worried about us as citizens and not just as consumers. That's right. And Louis Brandeis co-authored a law review article over 100 years ago showing that privacy is rooted in our Constitution, obviously in the Fourth Amendment, search and seizure, etc. And so he was very influential in that sense. Now, in your book, you propose a data protection authority to get the privacy issue under some sort of public protection. You want to explain that? So I am interested in trying to find a way to force the system back into the sorts of paradigms that you described before. So data is like the environment. It's a, it's not a good that these companies own. It's a good that they exploit. And so just as we let companies exploit the environment to a certain extent. We could certainly let companies exploit data to a certain extent, but they shouldn't be permitted to act as if they actually own the data. The data, at the end of the day, is ours. And so we need a regulatory system that shifts the balance back to this fundamental recognition of, of who, the, who actually owns the data. And so if they're going to be permitted to use data, they're going to have to accept responsibility for that. And that means that the government should be able to impose a system upon these companies that makes them act in the public interest as they exploit our data. It's just astonishing how little our system does to protect privacy and protect data. There's no comprehensive law protecting data in this country. In that vein, do you favor that the consumers who give all that free information, personal information to Facebook, should have a proprietary right of ownership and be able to charge Facebook for use of that information, which is the basis of Facebook's profits, of course? Yeah, I think that that's an interesting idea. I think we need a cleaner solution than that. I think as consumers, we need to be able to bargain with these guys from a position of much greater leverage, that the terms of service use that you alluded to earlier are so abusive, and we click them without reading them and without feeling like we have any sort of choice in the matter. And if you want to opt out of the system in any sort of way, it requires mastering a complicated bureaucratic system that's set up to prevent our ability from escaping their their desire to, uh, to peer more deeply into into our lives. And as so, I've said, underneath all is the fine print contract, which a, is what you're referring print. to. Yeah, and exactly. And we need to recognize what these companies are doing. They're playing a bureaucratic trick on us. You know, in some ways, these are innovative companies, but they also are incredibly bureaucratic. They subject us to forms and rules, and they try to obscure our ability to navigate our ways out of the system. And so the law should be much more forceful in demanding that these companies be straighter with us and demand that these companies give us greater agency over our privacy. You know, in your book, you say, quote, citizens, not the corporations that stealthily track them, should own their own data. 
the law yeah. should demand that these companies treat this data with the greatest care because it doesn't belong to them. And elsewhere in your book, you say uh, consumers should have the choice of opting out, not simply be assumed that they've opted in in some fine print contract of many pages. Yes, yes. These are oppressive documents. These terms of service agreements give them incredible amounts of latitude and immunity. And as consumers, we feel like we have no recourse. And what kind of system is that where consumers feel like they have no recourse over things that are so intimate and that actually, in the end, really do belong to them? You go back to a traditional proposal where you say on page 203, very clearly written book, by the way, listeners, it may seem confusing, but it's very, very clearly written. And you say the health of our democracy demands we consider treating Facebook, Google, and Amazon with the same firm hand that led government to wage war on AT&T, IBM, and Microsoft, namely monopolies at that time, even, you say, dismembering them into smaller companies if circumstances in the law demand a forceful response, end quote. Well, supposedly they are broken up, but they all behave the same way, a sort of parallel oligopoly. Would that change anything? Look, as liberals and reformers, we're trapped into oftentimes a binary way of thinking about corporate size, where we have these two traditions. We have the Brandeis tradition, which is you try to create smallness. You're afraid of big concentrations of power. And then there's a, there's the kind of Teddy Roosevelt approach, which leads us to greater and greater regulation, where there's some sort of acceptance of sizes and inevitability. And I don't think it's an either or sort of choice. We need to have a system where we use our, the power of our antitrust laws, the original antitrust laws as they were written, not as they've been reinterpreted over time, to try to create smaller companies and to try to prevent them from extending their arms into the next areas of technology, but that we also have regulatory solutions that we apply in an extremely sort of aggressive way. Because the truth is, even if we were to break these companies up, they would still have very strong incentives to keep surveilling us and to exploit our privacy and to abuse their power. So we need to use all the tools in our, in our chest. Well, I'd like you to draw the listeners' attention to the last two chapters, which are short, one called The Organic Mind and the other called The Paper Rebellion. The basic framework, listeners, I would suggest is that as long as Facebook, Google, and the other monopolists that we're discussing in this book spend infinitely more time figuring out ways to control you, to try to persuade you that because some things are discounted or some things are free, that you should surrender your being to their marketing framework. As long as they spend far more time than we as people spend trying to figure out how to escape their control, how to live a higher quality life, they're going to make Algis Huxley's brave new world look like an understatement. It's way beyond 1984 now. Uh, Orwell. It's Brave New World. And so I, I was intrigued in the chapter, The Organic Mind. You start out by saying, quote, the optimistic prospects for escaping the pull of Facebook, Google, and Amazon come in the form of yogurt, granola, and mash, end quote. Can you explain that? So we look at food, and I draw an extended analogy to food. So we had the emergence of processed foods, TV dinners, and the like, and the culture 
embrace them because it seemed like they were godsends that we didn't have to go shopping every day and we didn't need to clean up pots and pans and they were incredibly cheap. And then we woke up 50 years later, maybe people knew this earlier, but that these foods were engineered to make us fat, that they disrupted a whole economy leading to greater and greater concentration. And my fear is that the same thing is happening now with the things that we ingest through our minds and that content is becoming more processed. And I use the word content. It's a horrible word. It reflects everything that's wrong with the way that we think about journalism and information and culture now. But it's a pretty dark comparison, except for one thing, which is that when it comes to food, there's been a backlash and that people started to care a lot more about the things that they ingest. And so they've started to sacrifice efficiency in order to to buy foods that are organic or that they believe haven't been polluted with pesticides or whatever, and that they've started to shop at farmers markets because they want to be more intimately connected to the production of food. And, I, and my hope is, is that we can extend that parallel into knowledge and culture and that we can make the same sorts of virtuous choices that at least some people make when it comes to food that we should care deeply about how information is produced. And you know what? We're going to have to pay for it. This expectation that we can get quality information for free has turned out to be a really dangerous assumption. It's driven the quality of information down to levels where we get Donald Trump as president. And so you know, I, I think that there is some hope, ultimately, that we can have some sort of cultural counter-revolution that can push back against the tides. What do you think the schools should do other than try to put a computer in front of every nine-year-old's pupil? First of all, Silicon Valley has extended its reach into these schools, and they've tried huge, to... Huge, huge, huge. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a scandal, and that we need, to, we need to push back against that. But the other thing that I think is important is that we need to treat computer science in a different sort of way. That we live in a world where computer science has this dominion over everything right now because everything can be reduced to algorithms and to code. And unfortunately, the people who have this power are people who are trained to think only in terms of efficiency, only in terms of systems, because that's the ethos of computer science. And so I think we actually need to encourage a more humanistic approach to computer science where we, we don't just teach kids how to code and to program, but we need to teach them how to think ethically and we need to think, teach them how to think about moral and political problems so that it, we're not just leaving the system in the hands of people who are trying to design things in, in a way that is maximally efficient. Apart from the problems digital platforms create for workers, they present a bigger problem for society itself. Robert McChesney is a professor of communications at the University of Illinois and co-author of People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy, 
and a citizenless democracy. Uber is a classic example of um, exactly the sort of tension that the technology brings that that is due to capitalism. Now, what the investors and owners of Uber are doing is trying to set up pretty much a global monopoly or duopoly for a ride system based on uh, people using their own cars and just providing the algorithm uh, to overall see it and make a profit off of it. And um, the idea eventually with Uber, and, and they don't really hide this, is they intend that they see eventually there will be driverless cars and they'll have a fleet of driverless cars that will do this down the road. But in the meantime, they'll let people do it uh, with their own vehicles and use their uh, algorithm and, and their digital technology. Now, on this, in a capitalist economy, this works well in one sense because uh, it gives these people employment, uh, but it also undermines existing public service taxi systems all over the world that serve the entire community and have obligations that Uber drivers don't have. And the drivers also sometimes have protections and standards of living that Uber drivers will rarely achieve. Uh, but the problem is that what happens when these are driverless vehicles that Uber launches on, uh, puts out there? And in one sense, you could say that Uber as it is or Uber with driverless vehicles is a brilliant idea. I mean, if you have a city like Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver where you have terrible traffic congestion, what if no one actually owned their own car and you only had a fleet of driverless vehicles or the vehicles driven by Uber drivers that would pick you up and drop you off whenever you wanted and you just pay for that. But you wouldn't have to store a car. You wouldn't have to worry about maintenance or gasoline or pay for a car. Uh, it's probably, especially if the vehicles were uh, not fueled by oil, uh, they'd probably be much better for a society. There'd be hardly any traffic congestion uh, by comparison. Uh, there'd be better for the environment, better for urban living. Uh, the problem for the economy, though, is uh, under, under capitalism is twofold. I mean, it, it takes a big chunk of the economy out uh, of, of play. You don't have a, much, as much of an automobile industry. Uh, you don't have a fossil fuel industry. Uh, and you don't have people driving vehicles if it's self-driven. So you, that's the number one job in the United States for, for men is driving a vehicle of one form or another. Uh, so it's going to create immense problems. And then there's also the issue is if you're going to have like this algorithm like Uber has or, or Lyft, should a private company have a monopoly right and make killer profits off it? Shouldn't something like this be a public service? Shouldn't there be like a single-payer system? Uh, uh, I mean, it shouldn't be like some some gazillionaire just because they met at an algorithm. They get forever profits on it. They have private control over transportation. That's a public utility. This this leads to fundamental political questions about who should control a, a transit system that basically is, is the heartblood of a society. All of this points to another problem. And it's a big one. Digital platforms tend to form global monopolies. Uber is now the fastest-growing corporation in the history of the world. Since its beginning in 2009, it's expanded to over 670 cities in 83 countries. Airbnb is in 191 countries and is rapidly knocking out its competitors. Amazon, Google, and Facebook are other champions in the winner-take-all digital economy. You can't exaggerate the degree of monopoly in the digital face of capitalism. I mean, the Internet and the digital revolution uh, has produced more monopoly in capitalism than anything else has ever done before. It's really astonishing. I haven't looked for like two or three weeks, but every every 
month or so, I look at the list of the most valuable companies in the U.S. economy based on market value, the number of shares they have times the share price. And uh, the last time I looked, the top three companies and five of the top eight were internet monopolies, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, formerly Google. Uh, five of the eight most valuable companies in the U.S. economy are these internet companies. And they're all monopolies, the way, the way economists use the term monopoly. Because once you have a certain percentage, you can control how much entrance there is in the market, what the price is. It's you, you are a monopoly. You have that much power. And all these companies have monopoly power over core franchises. And it's a function of how the digital economy works with economies to scale, with network effects. That if you're the top search engine, uh, in a case like uh, Google, and no one else can really compete with you at a certain point in time because the everyone uses you and you have a much better product. Or if you're the top social media like Facebook, no one's going to go to MySpace and, and the four people to communicate with. You go to if you want to do social media, you're going to use Facebook. They have two billion customers. Everyone on earth uses it. That's the only one. That's the only game in town, so to speak. And so the digital economy produces global monopolies. Now, is this a problem? Uh, well, in traditional democratic theory, this is a irreconcilable problem. This is a cancer. It's been understood from the very beginning of democracy that if you have concentrated private economic power and monopoly, it's antithetical to having effective self-government. Uh, in the United States, it's the core of our tradition. And you look at the great political fights of the 19th and 20th century, they were on this very issue. How much power private uh, monopolistic firms had it led to the populist movement and progressive movements to break up the big firms because it was understood that if you have monopolistic firms that dominate your economy, as these digital giants completely dominate the U.S. economy and the world economy today, it gives them inordinate power over elected governments. No matter how democratic the system, no matter how dutiful the system is in trying to uh, limit corruption and the influence of big money, it's unavoidable when you've got firms that large, that powerful, controlling that much of the economy. They invariably get their way. And the only way you can maintain democracy ultimately is to uh, either break up the firms or nationalize them. Nationalizing corporations to avoid global monopolies may sound like a radical idea now, but we've done it before. We've had publicly owned railways and airlines, and we've made public utilities out of essential services like gas, electricity, and telecommunications. And as Robert McChesney says, the idea has had support from all over the political spectrum. The idea that you should that monopolistic firms are antithetical to uh, democracy uh, is not just a liberal, left-wing, populist, socialist, progressive idea. It's not just on the left wing of the spectrum. Um, Henry Simons, who was uh, uh, Milton Friedman's mentor as an economist at the University of Chicago, conservative free market economist who uh, disliked labor unions, who opposed the New Deal and, and social spending by government, what we would call social democracy today. He believed in market economics and capitalism in his bone marrow. Uh, he famously did research that said, look, if you have monopolistic companies, the equivalent, you know, like ATT back in his day or Standard Oil or today the Googles and Microsofts and Apples and Amazons, these monopolistic companies are not just bad for uh, democracy. They're bad for capitalism because these companies make killer profits and choke out small entrepreneurs, small investors. The small business sector has to pay them more. Uh, they make capitalism inefficient and indefensible. 
And his argument was that it was imperative that governments break up these big companies. And if they can't be broken up, they should be nationalized and taken out of the market system altogether so they can't get in the way of other businesses. And I think he made a pretty compelling argument uh, and one that's worth revisiting. Take a look at like bottled water. You might just go say, "Oh, I need. I'm thirsty. I'm gonna get some bottled water." Basically, that's three companies, right? You 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 got uh, Coke, you got Nestle, and you got Pepsi, right? Those are the three that make the bottled water. And yet, you but but when people think of it, they look on on the on the in the refrigerator at the place you're going to sell buy water, and they may have twenty different brands. How do you, how does that happen? Yeah, this is one of the things is, you know, I wrote about this in my book. It's, you know, I call it the illusion of choice. Right. And, uh, one, you know, Americans, you know, we walk around, we go into the store and we see all these different brands and all these different prices. And we think, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I, we study the, the, the choices each week and we try and like make, you know, we, you know, we have, I grew up in a, in a, in a family, we, we, we clipped coupons. We had a, a real tight budget. We were poor for a period of time. So we made, you know, we spent a lot of time making sure that we made wise decisions when we bought things. People do that. That's what smart people do. You know, it's like, that's what, uh, and, uh, but the fact is, when you go to uh, all of the uh, to, to many parts of the store, there's really just one choice. You're seeing actually a bunch of different brands, but they're all owned by one company, or maybe they're owned by two companies. But those two companies are in cahoots, and they are working together to set prices. So, uh, Barry, what do you think the future holds here? I mean, uh, you know, if you were going to recommend a few things that you'd like to see happen. Well, what what are some ideas uh, that that uh, we might work on to try to deconcentrate markets and give uh, innovative uh, entrepreneurs a shot, increase consumer choice, get some price competition? What do you think we might do? Well, I think the first thing that all of us have to do, because we have been trained for the last generation, two generations, to see ourselves as consumers. And this is, you know, there's, uh, this is something, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, it's been written in the law that we are not uh, citizens anymore in the political economy. We are, we are consumers in the political economy. So the very first thing that every one of us can do is say, you know, what? I'm not going to think of myself as a consumer anymore. I'm not going to think about, is it, uh, you know, is this concentration of power resulting in lower prices like they are promising me? It's like, uh, but think of yourself as a citizen. And think of the, you know, as a citizen, what is the primary thing you want out of the political economy? What you want is freedom to sell whatever it is that you have to sell, your labor, your ideas, your crops. You want the freedom to go and sell those at a fair price. And if you, you know, if that result, uh, the thing, if you end up driving up the amount of money that you earn from your work, that will more than make up if any of these prices actually go up. And the fact is, real competition will result in lower prices. Mm-hmm. So we will have higher wages and lower prices if we think of ourselves as citizens and say, I want a market structure that serves me as a citizen. That's, you know, number one. But, you know, uh, and I, you asked this, like, you know, what do I see in the future? And the, the, I believe with all of my heart, I know 
that we are going to be victorious in this, the American people. I mean, this is a, a tough time we are in. This is an amazing amount of power that is concentrated in front of us. But the thing is, as soon as you, as someone sort of opens their eyes to this, uh, uh, this concentration of power, uh, what we have is we have all of the wisdom of the American people built up over 200 years in this vast array of law and policy on how, you know, how to regulate competition among ourselves to ensure that we produce every year more to share with each other. Uh, that, you know, real productive, constructive competition, we know how to do it. We have models that were, st- that were built up over time, uh, uh, all kinds of laws that we can sort of reinstitute right now, update for the digital 21st century. We've did this for 200 years. We know how to do it. And we just, as soon as we wake up, we will know how we can move forward and 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 sort of uh, uh, take on these powers. We did beat the back the plutocrats uh, once before. Absolutely. I mean, if people talk about the first American Revolution. We have to remember this is the, a little bit of hidden history. There was a second American Revolution, and now going forward, we are going to have our third. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to listen to Barry Lynn and I talk about market concentration. I'm going to leave you with this thought: Be a citizen not just a consumer. Citizens are moral agents. They think about what's good and bad, what's right and what's wrong. Consumers don't think about these things. They think about what's cheaper, what's more fun, what they can buy. As a citizen, you need to operate on a certain level of uncertainty. You don't know how the election is going to turn out. You don't know if fighting City Hall is going to turn out for the good or the bad. You do it because it's right. You have to operate on hope. And hope that your engagement, your participation, and your vote will make a difference. Consumers, on the other hand, operate on certainty. The certainty that you're going to get your money's worth. That the brand you trust will give you what you want. And that you're getting the product that you want. Consumers don't have to take chances, but guess what? Citizens take chances all the time. Consumers operate in their own self-interest and only their self-interest. All they want to do is get more for themselves Please themselves, you know, shine your teeth, fresh your breath. That's all consumers care about. Citizens, on the other hand, think about what's best for the neighborhood, the city, the community, and the nation. It's time for us to think about ourselves as citizens, as self-conscious agents of our nation's best interests. Not just what can you get cheaper, or what's the new flavor, or what's the new whatever you can buy. Real citizenship requires something much deeper than that. We've just heard clips today starting with on the media pointing out that monopolization is the fundamental problem we're having with all of our big companies. We, the podcast, explained how anti-monopoly laws were changed in the first place. The Young Turks used the airline industry as an example to explain some of the repercussions of monopolization. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour advocated for regulations that give people the right of ownership over their data. 
ideas from the CBC, looked at the global monopolies that are being born out of platform capitalism, and finally, we just heard We the Podcast with Representative Keith Ellison wrapping up with a call to begin thinking of ourselves as citizens again rather than as consumers. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Corey from, gosh, actually currently I'm in the Beltway in traffic hell. But I wanted to comment on your Harvey Weinstein episode. There was a lot of discussion about sexual assault and inappropriate behavior and how that relates to power. And I wanted to share that when I was in middle school, I was one of the rare students that got to hear from a, a rape prevention specialist. And it stuck with me ever since that she shared that, um, Rape is not about sex, it's about power and control. So the story that was uh, discussed about Donald Trump following Hillary in a a leering sort of a way and how uncomfortable that was, I think that that is a, um, I think that's a a different part of sexual harassment to be discussed that I think that um, the other side could very easily say, well, clearly Donald Trump is not sexually attracted to Hillary Clinton and and all that. And I, I want to point out that it's not necessarily always about sexual attraction specifically it is about that power and control so whether he actually did anything sexual towards her he is leering in her space and he is taking her um, autonomy and her power by stepping into that area as a woman in the workplace i have many times i mean obviously most women have experienced sexual harassment but i would say that the majority of times that i have experienced it it has been in that subtle manner um particularly in my blue-collar days in which it was very easy for a man to sort of corner me and leer and and give that unspoken communication, which is, if I wanted to, I could. And that, I think, is sometimes just as damaging and certainly a, um, a very critical piece of this. So it's not always men in power, but it is men taking somebody's power from them or, you know, the aggressor taking power from them. So anyway, thanks for all you do. Um, Enjoy listening and uh, hope to hear from you soon. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Alan, your Patreon member from Connecticut calling in. That last episode was great. Goldmine was chapter or uh, section four with the TED talk on the dystopian society. That really was a home run and nailed it as to understanding for really for the greater good like i really could care less personally if somebody's tracking me it's not going to impact my life terribly but the overall societal aspect of that that was highlighted in that is is really the home run on that it'd be one thing if this was a science experiment and these were going to scientists and they were using it to better society and better the world hey i'd be encouraging it but we all know that, that this is just another corporate aspect of, of the way we've built this society. And so I think it really outlines that um, and gives that a home run. And I think I encourage people to share that specifically. I know I'm going to play it for my kids and family and so forth, but I think that's really the gold mine. So good find. Thank you and stay awesome.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Just have a couple major thoughts for you today and and one minor one sort of in between. Uh, the, the first is just that I'm sort of wondering how much you guys noticed the relationship between this episode and the previous two. I I didn't explicitly set out to create like a three-part series. It happened more naturally than that. And, uh, and years ago, I used to put out episodes that I thought fit well, and I, I would label them like part one and part two. And I always noticed that part two wasn't downloaded as many times as uh, as part one was, either because people thought, well, if I didn't hear the first one, then I might as well not hear the second one, and so they you know would skip the second, or a, a combination with maybe like, well, you know, if I already heard part one, then I I probably got it. I don't need more of the same. Uh, so so I, d- I didn't do that with with these, but uh, yeah, they, these three episodes they feel like a box set that, that really needed to go together. And, uh, even though I, you know, I planned on making all of these topics, I didn't necessarily think of putting them back to back this way. And, uh, you know, starting with media consolidation and, and the threat to net neutrality following with the way our lives are deeply, deeply impacted by these digital companies, social media and so forth that, that influence us in ways we can hardly understand and then wrapping it all up with the, the sort of foundational problem that has to do with all of these things is the problem with monopolies. Um, yeah, I just, I just thought it was, it was a important topic that I don't think I've even covered before and definitely not in this way. And each issue really, really, really stands on its own and also really, really, really needs to be understood within the context that, that the other issues, you know, the, the, they all create bookends. I think I called it a box set before. It's, it's, it's a box set within bookends. So I, I was just wondering your, your thoughts on, on these. And, uh, yeah, I would just be interested to hear what people think about each one of these topics or, or, or how they all fit together. Secondly, a quick apology to those of you who are aware when an episode of mine comes out late. Uh, I know that, I mean, I'm certainly not one of those people. If a podcast comes out late, I would never notice because my list is so long. I know a lot of people are in that camp, uh, but for those of you who look forward to it, to publish it about the same time uh, every week, apologies. This one's going to be out late. Uh, sometimes that happens. And the reason for that is my second major point I want to make today. I'm I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. Uh, to be honest, I already recorded my final comments for the show once, and I talked for almost 30 minutes straight without notes on the issue of Patreon. And I realized I was not happy with that. It, it was not interesting enough to warrant 30 straight minutes, but I, I clearly have a lot of opinions on the subject. So, so the short version is, if you are aware of the policy changes happening at Patreon right now that were announced this week, be aware, I am very, very aware of those changes. I have very strong opinions about them. 
I stayed up until 2 a.m. last night emailing Patreon's CEO about it. Articles have been written. Opinions have been expressed by a lot of people. And the, the very, very short version is that they are proposing a change in their fee structure. And I am of the opinion that it would fundamentally change the type of fundraising platform that Patreon is. I think that they have set themselves above the rest of the pack with their business model and that they are proposing that they lower themselves down to be equal with the rest of the pack. And I, I think that's not a good decision. I, I express my opinions in an email. Uh, I will continue to do that. But the, at the moment, we're in a holding pattern. So I actually think there's a decent chance that they will reverse their decision. As I said, I'm not going to go into a lot of details and bore everyone who doesn't know what's going on. But if you know what's going on or you want to look into it yourself, go read the articles. The one thing I will warn you, though, is that there was a lot of misconceptions at the beginning. I shared this misconception that the fee changes were potentially a way to generate more revenue for Patreon, the company themselves. They updated after their initial announcement. And I, I have it's com combined with the information they put out in their update and my like pretty deep well of knowledge about the system of payment processing. If I have to bring this up again and, and go into it at length, I'll explain why I know so much about this stuff. Besides just that I've been processing payments with PayPal and credit cards for this show for a long time. I know a lot about this stuff. I now absolutely believe what they say that the changes they are making is not about making more money for themselves or their investors. I, I believe that that is the case. Uh, so we're in a holding pattern. Don't panic. Don't cancel. Let's just see how this plays out. I, I actually think that they are going to get enough negative pushback from users on both ends, the patrons who pay and the creators who create. I, I think enough people are going to have negative reactions that they may actually reverse their decision. I am one of those people who expressed my negative opinions. So let's just see how that goes. But this issue is is why it, it has boiled over to uh, my episode being late. As I said, I stayed up late until two in the morning writing an email about this. I woke up feeling terrible, both physically and emotionally. My seasonal affective disorder kicked back in today. I, you know, ranted for 30 minutes in a final comment section that I ended up having to erase. And now it's late in the evening and I'm not going to get the show done. So all of this is just making me even more annoyed at Patreon for, uh, for screwing up my last couple of days and putting me in a particularly bad mood. So that's what I have to say about it at the moment. I will give you updates to, to let you know how things go, if, if changes are made, if, if it's an interesting enough story. Maybe it'll just go away and it won't be a, an issue at all. But, uh, you know, one, one way or another, I'll let you know how things go. But, um, boy, this is not what I needed to have happen right in the middle of my fundraising campaign. The platform that I have been promoting unabashedly for weeks and encouraging people to switch to based on their previous business model for them to change it right now is uh, just not what I needed in my life. So that's what's going on. Apologies again for the show being late. Thank you in advance for your understanding. If you have comments on this, or as I said, 
I would much rather actually talk about politics. I as as bad as it, as it is to talk about politics these days, I would still rather talk about politics than fundraising platform policy issues. I I, I, I cannot I cannot cannot uh, accurately describe my annoyance with, with this having popped up. So, if you have comments uh, about any of it, the number again two zero two nine 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 three nine nine one. That finally is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, of course, as always, to all of those who support the show by becoming a member and making donations of any size on either Patreon or, as I have done for years, just on PayPal through my website. That is absolutely how the program survives. And of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So come to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, even if it is sometimes a bit late, from bestoftheleft.com. Bye.